together again <laughs> and it's late and tonight instead of just a story I mean just a sonnet <laughs> I'm gonna tell you some sonnets and a story and they are all on the theme of Wednesday Adams a little bit because they're about me but they um growing up my nickname was Wednesday Adams and <laughs> Especially when I was, um, more college age and things like that. I, um, at the local bar that I would hang out at, punk rock bar, that's, I found out that that's what all the boys were <laughs> calling me. So, um, and I like that because I do, like most girls, love Wednesday Adams. And, um, so, it was, you know, <laughs> in addition to probably whatever other names they may have called me, that was a good one. And, um, anyway, <laughs> so I've always had a very special connection with Wednesday Adams, and I love, like, um, I even went to see the animated movie of the Adams Family that came out and drank a black icy <laughs> at the movie theater, and I dressed up like Wednesday Adams, and I went to it. So, it's just pure magic for me. Any, any iteration of the Adams Family I will watch, even if I might not like, like them all the same. It's still just so fun, and that's completely my aesthetic. So, I'm going to start tonight by reading you one of the few short stories that I've had published, and probably a lot of people don't even know that I have published any stories because I really don't do it very much. I don't even write them very much, but every once in a while it's happened. And this one I wrote, usually if I write a short story, it's very um, autobiographical, even if I called it fiction or horror in this case, because it was a very horror-based story, but it actually is all true. Um, so anyway, the story was called, um, You're Just His Type, and you're going to need to definitely have your teddy bear or my unicorn is with me because it's a little bit scary. It is something that I lived through and, um, like somebody else in the story didn't live through. I was going to a trial and the reason I was at the trial is that I, um, for part of my life after stripping, I, um, was a court reporter. And so, um, <laughs> I did, I went to court reporting school for a little while while I was stripping, so I'd have something to do when I wanted to get out of it, um, because I always knew it was something that you might have to get out of very quickly, because, I mean, I did it for five years, but it, you are around a lot of negative things, too. So anyway, while I was going to court reporting school, um, you had to go and watch trials. And I won't tell you too much because the story will kind of take over from there. But um, this is a story of something that happened to me because I had to go watch a trial. You're just his type. On a break, the second day of his murder-rape trial, he notices you. 
conferring with counsel, his over-the-shoulder peek into the gallery, seeking friendly faces, travels, lands far too long on yours. In your seat, five safe rows away, his hard stare makes you shiver. You do not know this hulking, bristly-faced rapist, jilted stabber of an ex-girlfriend. His case you choose at random, a court reporting course requirement. Observe a week-long trial. I'd choose a murder, your professor had suggested, most likely to be lengthy and engaging. You order your murder straight from the front page of the news journal, law and order style. It's close to lunch when it first happens, an entire morning devoted to the graphic, blood-spattered testimony of the brutal rape and murder of Jenna Wallach, 25. You look at poster-sized photographs of 19 stab wounds inflicted on the victim on the concrete outside her apartment at four in the afternoon. This is when he looks at you. On his pre-lunch break, now that you've been acquainted with his handiwork, when he looks, his lips rub against each other in contemplation, and then the corners turn up. The lawyer's eyes dart from the legal pad to his client. Noticing the contact, he scowls and nods towards the bench, directing his client's eyes away. Released from his stare, your eyes drop to the floor, and you finally take a break. On the third day, you hear testimony from Jenna Wallach's male neighbor describing female shrieks so shrill they penetrated my walls and my maxed-out manson. He explains his decision both to race to open the door and then slam it shut as he saw the defendant. Twenty feet away, soaked in blood, on top of Jenna, still stabbing. She wasn't moving anymore. You see how big he is. He stopped and turned, was looking right at me. If I'd had a gun or something, but I... I just... I slammed my door and I called the police. Judge, judging whispers of spectators in the galley surround you as he leaves a stand, but you do not judge this witness. In this courtroom, surrounded by armed officers, he held you still with his eyes. You understand. After lunch, before the jury comes in, he's brought into the courtroom. As he stands there, being unshackled, he scans for faces, finds yours, and freezes. Then his head tilts towards you, a playful nod. You look around for any other possible targets, but none exist. As I turn him around to put him into the chair, you see a flirtatious smile. The fourth day, his mother testifies about his fall. At two years old, from a kitchen counter, he had landed on his head. After lunch, an expert medical witness testifies the fall severely damaged his prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that governs impulse control. The judge calls for a 15-minute recess. It's been a long time since a break, 
Most of the audience scurries out to hunt for bathrooms, water. You require no such relief. Sit and process what you've just heard. The defendant's lawyers are arguing in animated whispers behind their legal pads next to him when he turns towards you again. Then his lips move and you realize he's forming a word. It looks to you like hi. Grabbing your purse from the bench at your side, you race from the courtroom and the building. A monster has chosen you. You've heard the symptoms of his disease and seen photographic evidence of its fatal consequence. You can no longer sit and pretend you aren't aware. Outside, requiring a drink, you wander a few blocks towards your favorite bar. It's only 345 they won't open until five, but you're a cute young regular and your ex-boyfriend works there. You know they get there early to deal with the liquor deliveries. Someone will let you in. You know it. When you look in the window, you see him. Peter, your ex, unloading liquor at the bar. You knock on the window. He smiles and blinks perpetually wounded brown eyes you crafted with carelessness at a party with a boy and some coke in a bedroom. He lets you in, though, as you know he would, even hugs you before he pours your favorite red wine you don't even have to request. You look pretty terrified. What's up? You tell him about school and the trial and the murderer's eyes all over you all the way to the high. He listens to the monologue, wide-eyed and attentive. Then, bizarrely, he laughs. Roger Farish? You went to his trial? Yes. The, his amusement irks you. He was a dishwasher at Rainbow's. Big-ass, creepy motherfucker. Called you Wednesday Adams. Wait, What? It's not rainbows that confuses you. You remember the restaurant where Peter worked as a waiter while you were dating. Sometimes you even ate there by yourself to be close to him while he worked. You never saw this Roger Farish, though. Apparently, he saw you. Almost fought that dude one day. Walked into the kitchen, him ranting exa about exactly what he wanted to do to Wednesday Adams. Good thing I didn't, though, right? He's smiling, but you're not. You never thought to warn me about this, Peter, that a psychopath was talking about me like this? I just spent a week at his murder trial. Peter drops a smile. Oh, right, because you told me everything, Ben Jill. You kept no secrets. You stand up to leave. You thought the wound that you'd inflicted on this boy might one day heal. But now you're sure it never will. Walking out of the bar, you hear his angry truth. Of course he would like you, Jill. You're just his type. You don't look back, and you won't ever talk to Peter again. You'll go to Roger's trial tomorrow. It's personal now. You need to know how it ends. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was horrible that it, 
is all pretty true. It was a little compressed. I, you know, it, it didn't quite happen exactly um, like me walking straight from the child to go to talk to this boy. But that same conversation happened with my ex-boyfriend who did know that, you know, that this man who ended up killing his girlfriend had this big crush on me, apparently, when I would come to visit him at his work. And you know, he became a pretty famous killer from where we lived. So, you know, it was pretty terrifying. And I would never have chosen to go to see his trial randomly had I even known. I mean, I, I didn't, he's a dishwasher. I, I didn't know that he worked there. I, you know, anyway. Um, so that's my, uh, one of my Wednesday Adams <laughs> references, but, um, and a pretty scary spooky story so everybody let's all give ourselves a hug of the stuffed animal because I it, it just it chills me a little that story uh, but it let me just say that this was so long ago and the outcome of that trial was that even though the reason he got a retrial is that they got that new evidence that he had um fallen and had this damage to his brain that's supposed to impact impact your impulse control and so he was allowed to have a new trial but his um at the new trial he was still convicted and i you know i have no idea what happened after that but um i know he was in jail for a very long time i mean this was all so many years ago. So I'm going to read now something a little lighter, a Wednesday Adams poem that I wrote um, called Wednesday. And it's a sonnet. So there will be some Kristen whispering sonnets tonight, not just telling scary stories. <laughs> um, this is Wednesday. We witch of woe, a twilight Tango tempt toward a thorny stem betwixt canines begets Bermuda bloom dark petals dreamt by demons doused with flame at stakes they pined for alabaster skin while their own turned to ash a punishment of Puritans a conjure not conception for what burned Arachnid baby doll in braids condemns all men. Beguile, bewitch, behead, believe. A voice of vengeance, a family friend. A sharpened knife inside an onyx sleeve. To ancestral siren summons, she dares descend. They compel a mother to behead blooms. Her blackest rose, a daughter, taught in tombs. So, yes, another, uh, when I wrote that poem, it was just so, I, I just love that aesthetic and I love being able to just immerse myself in something that I feel like such a connection to. And even though it's dark, Wednesday Adams is always very comforting to me, even though that first story is obviously not very comforting, but, um, <laughs> still not over that, I know. But, um, anyway, I'm going to read another poem that, a sonnet that I wrote that also, it, it kind of continues the, um, Wednesday theme and it's called Calpurnia because Wednesday, if you, um, watch all of the Adams family things, she, um, 
there's an episode, I think it's in Adam Stanley Values, that they go to school and the teacher tells Morticia, oh, all the children are drawing their role models and here's someone's drawing Jane Polly and here's this. And, um, you know, she, and, and Wednesday has drawn Calpurnia, her great aunt who is, um, like burned in Salem. And, and as a witch and that's her role model and so I always wanted because it's it's just like a one-liner I love things in stories that are just a one-liner and like to take something like that and expand a universe of a story so um it, it's a one-liner in a great picture that she holds up like a child's drawing of Calpurnia her aunt burning in the flames very dramatic and, and beautiful just a beautiful picture but um it's, um, this is the poem Calpurnia, that my little expansion on this legacy of, of the Adams family. After Morticia Adams describing Wednesday's role model, Wednesday's great aunt Calpurnia, she was burned as a witch in 1706. They said she danced naked in town, the town square and enslaved a minister. But don't worry, we've told Wednesday college first young girls require a patron saint ants abysmal ashes antiquate entwined massachusetts grave with god's servant whom she enslaved impious mind in clerical cravat a town square dance performed in only Raven plats bewitched him, powdered wig, preaching tabs, hung entranced, skinned bones inside this slab, witch ashes stitched inside a velvet pouch. Five shovels, Salem, dig them out. Calpurnia and her slave by Packard V-12, conveyed to asylum amidst a family deceased, depraved, to rest in peace beneath Wednesday's window. A girl needs role models six feet below. <laughs> and I just, that's one of the things I so much love about the Adams family, is that it is so dark, and they're so odd, and enchanting and disturbing but they're also so connected and they really value their ancestors and their parents and it, it to me I have always been a because I guess because I was abused and because I don't I'm not close with my family that I romanticize that in any way and I definitely you know romanticize that um dark being accepted being dark and being accepted and loved and having a, a family as odd as it could be and so I really you know I just could talk about the Adams family all night but it's getting late and if I was Wednesday Adams I would have my doll and I'd be holding her broken off head right now and holding her tight to my chest and gripping her and closing my eyes and I hope all of you are and have some 
nice sinister sexy dreams and I am going to say goodnight for right now but next week I'll be back and who knows what I'll talk about but it'll be fun and I hope you'll join me next week same time for Kristen Whispers Sonnets Join me for a sonnet bedtime treat.